Hi, everybody. Regina here. I'm in a little different location today, having a little bit of internet problems around here, but I think this should take care of it. Um, we're going to talk about a really fascinating topic. To me, one of the most important affairs that happened in terms of would appear to be extraterrestrial vehicles or craft, UFO, and the interface with the U.S. military, and the whole process of how these things are documented, ultimately even covered up. And this is the incident that happened in Rendlesham Forest in, in Britain back in 1980. Um, I have done a previous interview with Gaia, um, with Nick Pope, who was the author of his book, which was called The Encounter at Rendlesham Forest. But one of the key people is Jim Peniston. He's the man that actually had contact with the craft, touched it, and was downloaded with this incredible information, a binary code that has information that I think we all need to know about. Jim has now written his own book in part to set the story straight and also expand on some of the things that were not covered in Nick Pope's book. And his book is called the Rendlesham Enigma, book one, because there's a book two coming. So without further ado, let's go to Jim Penniston. Jim, welcome. Um, how long did it take you to put this beautiful document, uh, documented case together? This is, this is almost 800 pages. Oh, it's incredible. Uh, the research started with my Rendlesham Forest research team in 19, no, to make that 2010. Okay. And and uh, the one of the people that became the, eventually the uh, team leader of that team was Gary Osborne, and that's who the co-author is for the book. And so we started writing the book uh, after uh, the uh, encounter book with Nick, mm -hmm. and and uh, we did that in 2015. It's been four and a half years. Four and a half years. Yeah, it is very detailed. You have a lot of the original documents, everything is sourced, and you also have um, the original sketches and diagrams that you took out in the field that night, Christmas, uh, 1980, uh, really. Um, in fact, this is often called the most documented UFO case in history, and I think that's what makes it so fascinating to me. So many people witnessing from so many angles, also so much misinformation, and you even say, to, to an extent, disinformation that happens around these events. Right. It, it is well documented, and that's because uh, we were doing our jobs. Uh, we were uh, implemented, as a matter of fact, I implemented uh, two security response options, a downed aircraft out there, which I later terminated and changed it for a security threat, which was a, a helping hand situation. Mm -hmm. which, and so that's that's one of the reasons I think I stayed a little bit grounded with it, considering, yeah. uh, is, is I kept trying to do what I was trained to do, uh, running those checklists, you know, even though there is not a checklist for <laughs> uh, that kind of craft. Absolutely not. Now, this happened in, um, in the Rendlesham Forest area, which had a, a, a military base called Bentwater and another called Woodbridge. Tell us the nature of these two bases originally and um, how the U.S. had involvement there. And then let's extend it into the story of the fact that there were nuclear warheads there. Okay. Uh, well, the bases were two bases that were previous World War II uh, British bases. We uh, we were given them pretty much after the war, 
for other mission requirements. And uh, they're separated by three uh, miles geographically as a crow flies. The main operating base is RF Bentwaters, and it was fully under U.S. control, both bases. Um, and the Woodbridge only had like two other squadrons there. All the command elements, all the control centers were at Bentwaters. Uh, we did have a token officer that was a British uh, liaison. He was uh, a squadron leader. Uh, so that fulfilled the NATO requirement. And uh, it was at the height of the Cold War. And uh, yeah, I think that there might be a, a connection maybe to the nuclear uh, part of it. Uh, we had uh, Sizewell, for example, which is a huge uh, nuclear power plant about oh, 20, 25 miles north of uh, the base, too. Okay, that's interesting. I just know from cases that I've followed over the last 30 years, this is pretty common. Okay, let's set it up. Christmas, late at night, 1980, there's a phenomena in the sky. You're working security. What happens? I got a call at the uh, Chow Hall at Woodbridge uh, to proceed to the uh, East Gate and says uh, I need to contact uh, the two patrolmen out there. Since I was the flight chief in charge of security for Woodbridge that night, it took me about four minutes to go out there running code, lights on. And when I arrived, I contacted the senior law enforcement patrolman. That was uh, Staff Sergeant Stephens. And I said, oh, what's going on, bud? That happens to be his name, bud. And... Uh, he says, uh, he just sort of pointed over to the Rendlesham Forest area with his finger, and I could see, you know, lights, you know, pulsating in the, in the tree line. And I says, well, I said, did you see a crash? Because that's the first thing I thought. I thought it was an aircraft crash. Even though it didn't quite look like an aircraft crash that I've seen prior to that, and at that point, I'd probably been to maybe 20, 22. I can't really remember the number of aircraft crashes and, uh, you know, at various points. And uh, it, the fire wasn't right. Okay, when titanium burns, it's just not, it's in fuel. The, the fire didn't seem right. And I says, uh, I kept saying to Bud, I says, you know, did it crash? He says, it didn't crash. He says, it landed. I says, there's no way it could land. I says, the trees are too close together. And I said, so it crashed. And he goes, no, it landed. I said, okay. So I went right to the east gate. There's a direct line. I contacted the patrol center at Bentwaters. Uh, Sergeant Coffee answered. And along with that, when you when you call like on that direct line with the incident out there, uh, there's like five people on the line at the same time. This is all ha happening pretty instantaneously. And uh, I had the you know like the flight flight sergeant from. Bentwaters, I had the ship commander, I had the controller, the comp plotter, I had all kinds of people. And they were all doing their job at the time. So I said, uh, it appears to be an aircraft crash. And on, under the status of forces agreement, we have to have a bona fide uh, emergency to deploy off base. And, and maybe about you know, a minute went by and uh, Sergeant Coffee came back online. He had checked with uh, London radar, and he checked with the Eastern radar and Bentwaters radar, and they triangulated a last contact of a bogey you know, over Woodridge Base, and they lost contact with it. So we now had an emergency. An aircraft no longer on radar, 
disappears. It appears to be a fire in the forest. And uh, we were given permission from the base commander, Colonel Conrad, to deploy off base. I took myself, uh, a law enforcement patrolman, who, who did mainly like base entry point guard, but I also had a security airman who was trained you know, in the security of the base. And as we deployed uh, in the Jeep, I had a crash kit, and that's just a, a kit that we already have assembled, you know, with uh, binoculars and cameras and uh, checklists, plotting maps and all those neat things. And what I was going to do, since I was deploying for the aircraft crash, is to set up an inter-control point at a certain point where other first responders could deploy, like, you know, uh, fire department, uh, mortuary, uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of the other first responders. And so I got to a point where I could drive my vehicle any, any farther to achieve. And so this is going to be our entry control point. I plotted it in, called it in. Uh, and I noticed at that time, my radio transmissions, I wasn't receiving the control center well, which was impossible because uh, we had repeating systems all over the twin bases. Uh, but this is the first. So you were cut off from context. Yeah, it it was breaking up, and, it's, and so we only had two radios. Uh, so Airman Kabanzak, the security airman, uh, I said, "You're going to be the entry controller for the response," and he said, "No problem." Uh, he was ready to take on the task. It was his first night in the Air Force. <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, so I deployed uh, on foot with a, uh, the uh, law enforcement airman, Airman Burroughs. And uh, as you know, I got closer to it, we got to the tree line, and this was not an aircraft crash. I knew, I knew it at that point. Now, first so of all, let me just say one thing really quickly, just to set the stage for everyone. You were around 25 years old. and yeah, 26. Burroughs was around 20. Neither one of you were particularly seasoned, but you were the far more seasoned of the two and certainly hadn't been coached in what happens if you oh. uh, if you encounter this kind of craft. So this, oh, no. you're, all out, you're all out of your league, everybody. No, I know. My, my previous assignments, uh, I mean, I, held a, I had a top secret clearance when I was an airman. So uh, I worked, you know, like SAC command post. I was a bodyguard for air staff. I uh, was in charge of security for Minutemen, ICBMs, 10 of them. Uh, I mean, these are the experience level that I had coming to the, into it. Um, so anyway, you, two are, you two are out there now, and now you're having to deal with it. You're looking at it. Well, uh, I'm working it, okay? Uh, as I... Uh, what I did is I pulled the uh, camera. Uh, I had to slip the camera from the crash kit because I thought I was going to be taking evidence type photographs of maybe, you know, debris or classified or stuff like that. So I started shooting that. It was the old type, you know, the uh, Canon uh, automatic cameras, uh, black and white film. I think there's 36 in a row. I started shooting as I walked up and uh, as I got to the tree line, uh, you know, of course, run off film then, right? And I'm pretty close, so I'm like within about 10, 15 feet of, of, of this, of this uh, intense lighting. 
and uh, what I thought was intense. Okay, as we started to enter the uh, forest, there was a flash that just uh, that encompassed the whole area, and I guess there was reaction. I thought there was going to be a boom with that, and we both hit the ground. And uh, here I am on the ground. I don't hear. I don't hear nothing. I, <laughs> I'm still alive. I'm going okay. That was an explosion. I started getting up, and there was berms out there because the forestry service would cut uh, the trees. You know, uh, when they got you know like after about ten years, they do a cutting and then they replant. And these berms were earthen berms. They stood about five feet high. Uh, so over the berm, I could still see the light. And I started walking toward it. Uh, as I walked toward it, I started getting a, a physical effect from it, uh, a feeling of uh, uh, static electricity on my, on my uh, face, my skin, my hair. Uh, it was unusual. You know, I, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't even adrenaline. Okay. Uh, it, at first, I said it could be, but it continued. So. <laughs> well, yeah. let, me, let me ask you a question at this point. So, at this point, it's still appearing as light, right? And there's right. No, there's no sound. Just this brilliant light, no sound, the static electricity. You're not seeing any shape of a craft or anything yet. Not yet. And as I started walking up the. The berm, the earthen berm, the light when it had dissipated, it was dissipating down the white, bluish type light. And as I came over, I could see a, a ball of this light. And then, as I started walking a little closer, I could uh, my my movements were labored. Um, the best way to describe it is like uh, walking waist deep in a pool of water. That's my, my walk was that, that labor. And um, as the light started to dissipate down, I could start to see the formation of a black craft, opaque craft, very shiny, black and shiny. And inside the fabric of this craft, the outside of it, uh, there was like globular colors running throughout fairly fast and then they were slowing down I could see them fade away and then all appeared there was the black craft and there was some light coming out from the bottom of it white light and uh, that's when I uh, initiated the uh, helping hand situation terminated mm -hmm. the aircraft crash okay so now you're standing in front of this craft, and um, you, now you're approaching it. You're close. You, you've gone through this. Do you have, is there a fear running through you at this point, or are you feeling that you're just following a protocol? I mean, certainly you must have known you, this wasn't normal. No, that's, uh, I knew it wasn't normal. That's why I initiated the security uh, uh, protocol. Yeah, a helping hand situation is a situation involving possibly a threat to the priority A, B, C resources, operational resources on the bases. So I knew there was a good possibility this could be a hostile, it could be a ruse. It was a highly cold war. Maybe this is just, you know, go ahead and deflect security forces. I don't know. Um, 
I was scared. Yeah, I was scared because I didn't know what I was looking at because uh, it was intact. It wasn't, you know, uh, crashed or anything like that. So as I moved forward with the craft, I will explain that, I will try to explain. Around the first 10 feet of the craft is what I call the sphere of influence. That's the term I give it. Uh, meaning that that area was different than the area outside of the light, the immediate light around the craft. Back to my right, about 25 feet, was Aaron Burroughs. He was standing outside of it, and he was motionless. You said this throughout the book, that it was though he was in a state of suspended animation. Whatever was emanating or whatever was going on inside him had him kind of just frozen. Well, based on the evidence, I don't think it's, it says that in the book, but I, don't th I think the theory, we have a working theory on it. The working theory is that the, uh, that immediate area, that sphere of influence, yeah. time, was different. It was, you did say this. It was distorted, severely distorted. Yeah, you know, it could very well be that uh, from his observation point, everything's instantaneous, but it wasn't for me. And what brings me to that conclusion? Well, one is I had an electronic watch on and stopped for 45 minutes. So we think whatever that electrical effect was, was, was causing a distortion around that craft. I don't know whether that shift mm -hmm. was trying to catch up with regular time or uh, it was out of sync. Right. And, I, and, and I, I say this because uh, the longer I was in, fr in front of this craft, the uh, effects of the, uh, you know, labored movements, uh, the static electricity started to dissipate. And so I'm out of film. I'm out of film at that point. And I said, well, only thing I can do, if this is hostile, if it's not by nine, if it's... Uh, if some way I don't survive this, I need to go ahead and document as much as I can so the people at the command level can make decisions later on. And so then, then I, took, I took my notebook out. I started to record everything. The first thing that really got my attention was the light that was coming out from underneath the craft. How does, how is this staying fixed? How is this holding itself up? Uh, so, you know, I'm looking underneath it, and I said, well, it's got, it's, it, this doesn't look like it's hovering, but it looks fixed somehow, you know, and I'll use the, it looks like light, but obviously the technology is something else, I don't know what it is, and so I tried to push the craft and to see if it moved. I'll tell you right now, if you had a Cadillac car sitting out there and you pushed it, you'd move something. A little bit. It would. This didn't move at all. Well, now, so, weren't there also depressions in the, in the earth underneath it, even though there was nothing actually touching the ground, that the depression seemed to come from a kind of weight we don't understand, perhaps? Right. When the, uh, when the, when the further investigation went the following days, they actually me measured the uh, impressions in the ground, they were one and a half inch deep. They were all, uh, you know, size of a saucer type chase, uh, shape. They were all equally spaced. Uh, so the technology somehow uh, 
uh, appeared to be light, my conclusion, uh, but it was able to hold this in place. Uh, fascinating technology. Uh, so now you're close enough and, it, and you decide you're going to begin touching this craft. Did you do this spontaneously or was this part of a formal investigation in your own mind at that time? Because it's something you didn't want to offer up later. Well, I was trying to gain as much information as I could about the craft. So I didn't have no measuring devices, so I pasted it off. My, my, my pace, uh, my stride is three feet about, since I'm six foot two. Uh, and I, and that I measured out to be nine feet. So that's, that's the actual length of it. It was like that on all sides. It was pretty much uh, a, a perfect triangle. Uh, then the other thing, uh, it uh, was about six and a half feet high because I'm six foot two. Uh, I also uh, looked for things like stuff that aircraft have that make you know let them fly. I looked for flaps, uh, had none. Had looked for uh, Arians, I looked for crew compartments, I looked for everything that, uh, you know, intakes, uh, exhaust, they had none of this. It was, so pretty much it couldn't fly, but it was there. More confusion. Uh, so I started to do my 360 walk around of it. And as I did the 360, I seen there was writing on, on, on what appeared on the one side of the craft. I felt relieved. I was hoping it would say experimental something, Nassau, Soviet, U.S. Air Force, anything. Nassau, you I don't care. Guys believe in Soviet. <laughs> I, well, I know that. I know. Here's the other thing. I knew we didn't have the technology, and we are the number one technology in the world for aircraft. Uh, when I was at Austin, I seen the prototypes for 50 years in the future. Okay, and there's nothing like this. You got to have these things to fly. I mean, you got to have flaps. You got to have engines that you know have exhaust. I mean, so I I'm pretty much I'm I know that this is not ours, and uh, but there was still that hope. So as I got closer, and and the the skin of the craft is uh, was like I is like black glass. Uh, that's smooth, uh, and I could see there were symbols, glyphs, not not uh, not language as I knew it, uh, and uh, they were different symbols across five of them. And then there's a larger one, a triangular one that was about on the top. The symbols were about three feet apart. Used my hands. The bottom line were about, uh, you know, four to five inches high. The one on top was larger. I would say that was about 10, uh, based on two hand widths. And uh, so I, you know, I ran my hands across the bottom. It went from completely smooth uh, with the rest of the craft to a feeling of like uh, sandpaper, like it was etched, those symbols were. I continued to walk around. Uh, looking for anything else. I stopped, I made my notes, and I did another 360. On the second time around, uh, 
I wanted to give those symbols just a little bit more attention because uh, I was fascinated by them. And uh, so I'm running my hands over it, and I felt like I should just touch that top one because it was the biggest one. And when I did, there was a explosion of white light. I cannot explain this. Uh, I couldn't see nothing else. Uh, it was so blinding that all I could see was white light. And in the middle of this white blinding light in, in a mind's eye, I see like rapid symbols of ones and zeros. Okay. I'm, I'm really freaked out at this point. Uh, now let me ask you, did you understand binary code and what it was at that time? I didn't, didn't no, I didn't actually find out about what it was uh, binary like 20 years later or something like that. Uh, but I call them ones and zeros because that's what they were to me. And uh, so I was pretty, I was pretty taken back by it. And for some reason I gained my senses and all I did is just lift my hand off and it was completely everything back to normal. And I'll tell you what, this technology, this light again, it wasn't light. I'm just describing it that way. I, I tell you why it's not light. It's not light because uh, out in that dark forest, if you would have had something that bright, regular light, your night vision would have been gone for 40 minutes, 50 minutes. I, I instantaneously had my night vision. So right. it wasn't light. Uh, but I tell you what, I didn't touch it after that point again. I, I kept my hands off it. But as I came back around for the other part of the, the walk around, I I start seeing these globs of light appearing again, and they're starting to move. And so it looks like it's starting to uh, activate something. And I'm thinking, did I activate something? Did I... Did I start something? Did I cause something to happen? Is this going to explode or what is, what's going to happen? And so I got back about 10, 15 feet, got down in the prone position, expecting maybe an explosion. I thought that that might happen. And uh, it, didn't, it didn't though. Uh, what happened was is it started to, you know, more uh, light where I could not see the black, part of the craft anymore. It was more of a, uh, a ball of white light. And it started to uh, lift up, even though I could still see part of the craft in it, but it lifted up. As it lifted up, though, another thing that all aircraft would have didn't happen. It didn't have no air displacement. It didn't have no sound. Uh, it... Uh, moved on back through the trees where it could not move because they're only four or five feet apart and went back about 15 feet. And then it went up to the canopy of the forest, uh, which is about, you know, 50, 60 feet. And uh, it made a slight turn and it was gone. Immediately once that happened, uh, I could start hearing things. Before there was just dead sound, there was nothing. You couldn't hear the, you know, the, the forest, the, the uh, me walking, breaking the branches or nothing. Because I heard branches break in, right after the departure, and it was the airman that I wrote off. Uh, he was there, and uh, he says, 
I see it. And he takes off. Two, we have a team concept in the Air Force. You never leave your team ever. That's one thing you never do. It's drilled in you. Apparently, it wasn't drilled in him. Well, it was his first day. <laughs> no, it wasn't him. He, he's been in for a year. He knows Oh, better. this other one. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so I go after him. And we're running. And, you know, I mean, we go about 30 feet, 40 feet. We're jumping. I'm jumping double fencing to the farmer's field. I go across this farmer's field. There's water or something that's in the middle of the field. I fall down, I don't know how many times, two or three times. And I finally get past the farmhouses and that, and I'm pretty much exhausted. And he finally stops. Thank God. And I said, oh, I can't go any farther. I couldn't go any farther. I said, you got to stay with me. And he said, well, there it is over there. I'm looking all over the place for this craft. I said, where? He says, over there. I said, where? And so he points over here. I said, look, we're not even, that ain't even the direction we were going. And uh, he says, look at my arm. So I looked down his arm and off to the far uh, opposite direction was the, uh, uh, the lighthouse from Orford Ness. And I said, that's not, it's a lighthouse. And it was so dim, it, you could barely see it, you know. Uh, and then uh, as I turned back around, I seen the craft sitting over the Cable Green area, which is part of the forest. And it, I didn't get a chance to react at all with that. It just started to move rapidly out toward the, for some reason, the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the ocean, so the sea, North Sea, and uh, that was the last time we seen it. So after these incidents, at what point did other people uh, start becoming engaged in this, um, people back at the base and so forth? Well, the engagement started immediately upon, uh, well, prior to me even getting out there, like, uh, uh, you know, the two law enforcement people had uh, seen it earlier, but here's the thing. After we get back and after we're, you know, we're talking, because initially none of this was classified. We could talk about it. And uh, like Aaron Bertolozzi uh, uh, and uh, Sergeant Hall, they were operating on uh, RF Bentwaters. Uh, they watched actually the craft land. See, I'd never seen that. And then I had my teams that were in Charlie and Delta restrict area, you know, uh, personnel they they seen everything that we seen i mean from the from the distance so sergeant chandler the flight chief from uh bentwaters uh, when i deployed off base on the aircraft response he was en route there to east gate to take charge of the base because you had to have a command element for the security there. yeah so he's seen everything yeah and the reason i know this because when i get back uh, you know, for the posting bus, you know, get back to central security control that morning. Sergeant Chandler is waiting for me. I said, oh, man, I said, you wouldn't believe last night. And he goes, I've seen everything. He said, believe me, I, I he says, turn your weapon. And he says, uh, you know, uh, he said, the shift commander wants to talk to you. Today's shift commander. So, okay, I'll do that. And so I turned my weapon in. I had my 
paperwork for the 1569 incident complaint report. It's really a detailed thing of yeah. what happened by time. And I was going to give it to uh, Sergeant Coffee in the control center. And when I went in there, Coffee says, hey, I don't need that. I said, you don't? He goes, no. He says, uh, here, I just read this to see if it's accurate. He said, we heard everything on the radio. I just couldn't hear them. See, that was the thing. And, yeah, and it was a good thing I kept it in security checks, too. <laughs> because I, I, I was hoping that he heard, they could hear me, even though I couldn't hear them. Now, at this time, did you share with them your notes and the symbols and all of that? Well, no, I kept it. I kept my 1569, which is part of my notebook. I kept that, and, you know, I just put it back in my pocket. And uh, I read the 1569, and, you know, Sergeant Coffee had the times right, obviously. So, and what happened? So I was good to go with it. Were you relieved at that point that you didn't have to really get into a lot of the uh, details of the experience of it? Yeah, I was dreading. I was dreading uh, writing the complaint report out, uh, and I was so glad that Sergeant Coffee was really a good security controller, and I was so happy that and relieved that he uh, actually heard all the transmissions. Those transmissions, by the way. One of the disinformation stories is that there's videotape and all this stuff that never happened. The tape that we're talking about is that the wing command posts, they have a, at that time a TX reel to reel. And what it would do is record all radio transmissions of, you know, fire department, security police, whatever. It would do that for like, you know, a 48 hour time frame. Those reels are gold. Those recorded everything. And uh, those are the ones that General Gabriel picked up the following day, personally, and who was in charge of all U.S. Air Forces Europe. He thought it was important enough to pick them up himself. Okay. So here we have this. Now you still have your little notebook. You still have the experience. Uh, and it appears... That, that download that happened uh, was much more profound than you might have expected. At what point did you start just literally writing out from something beyond memory the sequence of the ones and the zeros? You know, I, it, you know, I survived the incident. I was, I was feeling good about that, but, you know, uh, I kept trying to go to sleep. I mean, uh, uh, there's no doubt that I was traumatized by it. I mean, I couldn't sleep. I was just too hyped up. Uh, even when I lay down, half hour later, I'm up. Finally, around midnight uh, on the 26th, maybe 1 o'clock in the morning on the 27th, I can't remember, I got up, and I just made my mind up. I said, well, it looks like I'm not going to sleep the rest of the night. So what do I do? I make a pot of coffee because I'm not going to sleep anyway. So I'm sitting at my uh, dining room table, and uh, – I'm starting to, you know, second guess everything, uh, what everything had happened, and, you know, did it happen exactly like this? And so I went up to my, uh, I had a notebook laying there, so I, you know, along with my other stuff, and I, I picked it up, and so I started looking at my notes again, you know, the drawings, uh, the, you know, real world time notes. I started, uh, and, and this is like, I don't know how to explain this in a mind's eye. I don't know how to explain this, but 
even though I, I would shut my eyes and I could see these ones and zeros, and I said, you know what, I think I can, I think I can write those down. Uh, maybe I will. So I flipped to the back of the, near the back of the notebook, it's the only paper I had, and uh, I started writing, you know, the one, zero, 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 one, 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 zero, zero, one, one. Start writing, started writing those down. And the, what happened was I felt better. I felt sort of relieved. I felt it's really a, a strange sensation. I, I'll tell you, uh, I thought I was like losing it. I thought it was a normal breakdown, but I'm for anything that feels good. All I know is it felt good. There's no way I could go to the base hospital and tell them that I had an encounter with a craft on those origin, and then I go home and I see ones and zeros. I mean, it's not, <laughs> not going to end good. So it would not it would not end well. No. And so, so as you're writing these ones and zeros, this feeling of relief comes over you. And then, how long did this go on? Again, not even knowing oh. what ones and zeros meant. I, I all I know is it felt I was I felt relieved, and I will tell you how bad it was. Uh, the uh, my wanting to write these down is. You know how it is when you have pens sitting in a, in a drawer somewhere, half of them work or they end up not working? Mine did stop working. And I'm like panicking, looking for a pen. <laughs> <laughs> so I finally get them. I just take off wherever I, I, I left off. And finally, it was just like a stop. I said, well, I don't see any more ones and zeros. And I felt good. I'm thinking, geez, Jim, you just dodged your bullet because you know what? You don't have to go to the base hospital. You feel pretty good. And uh, so, you know, it was a pretty bad time. I wasn't going to tell anybody about writing those down. And I never did. So They were actually discovered accidentally by by some 30 years later by John Burroughs and uh, Linda Mullen Howe. Uh, when they ask me about a number on a film shoot, I'm looking for a phone number in the notebook because I got the notebook there and I went too far and all the ones and zeros and I was thinking, oh no. Uh, they're all saying, what's that? What's that? What's what you got there? Uh, oh, that's stuff I wrote down after the incident. I couldn't sleep. You know, I felt really bad about it. I said, well, I might as well tell them I had a breakdown, I guess. And that's what I heard for the first time, by the way, the word binary with them. Because that's binary code. I said, what? And I remember I did a book with her, like, back in, I don't know, 95. And she used some of my transcripts from my hypnosis after I got out of the service for not sleeping. And they mentioned binary. And I never knew what it meant. I never had a clue what it was. So it was them that, that, that discovered it. But... Uh, more fascinating was that the fact when we had it researched, they had a message because there's just no way that can mean anything. Because I remember back writing them down, I said, it can't mean nothing. It's just it's a, it's a mental part of the trauma or something. It's a mental condition, right. Okay, so now uh, it's been discovered, this binary code has been discovered, and let's talk about um, the hypnosis that happened with the military and what you discovered in hypnosis later on in regression about 
something that had been inserted having to do with a nursery rhyme you know, or a song. Mary Had a Little Lamb. That was really weird. Well, part of the problem is that uh, I didn't have this. After I retired in 93, in 94, I was having trouble sleeping again. So I went to my MD. She couldn't help me, but she gave me a referral to a psychiatrist. So, hey, Tim, you, this might help you. And I said, okay, I'm willing to do anything because I'm down to like two hours sleep a night. You know, you can't live like that very long. So I went in and seen her and I, for about a month. And finally she says, I think there's something in your past, a trauma, uh, maybe as a child or something. She said, I don't know. Uh, I like to do hypnosis on you. And I said, you know what? I said, okay, anything that could possibly help. And so she, she had her own notes. She actually taped the sessions. Those were her notes. And uh, so we do the first two-hour one. And, uh, you know, I come out of it. I'm refreshed. Everything's going great. And I look over to her, and she's got her jaw down at the table. I said, what's, what's wrong? What's wrong? And she says, we're going to have to have another session, and you're going to have to tell me about uh, R.F. Woodbridge. Uh, oh, no. So that's how we got the second one. We ended up doing four and a half hours worth. Only, I think, uh, two minutes of it's ever been made public. Uh, matter of fact, I never even watched the... Um, she gave me the notes. Uh, she, uh, today's world, everybody's worried about getting sued. But she gave me the notes back then, uh, the, the videos. So I got them. Uh, and then... Uh, I never watched them, and I couldn't. I attempted, I don't know, hundreds of times, and uh, it's just it's just it's too raw. And uh, so I was telling Gary about this when we were writing the book. Gary Osborne. Now, who did introduce, introduce him? Who is he? Gary Osborne is originally the team chief. He's an author in his, in his own right. But he's the original team chief of our investigation team at Rendlesham. And um, we've done, I mean, the one since 2010. And he was also a contributor, uh, would-be contributor on Nick Pope's book. And like I said, he's got his own books out too. But anyway, uh, he's now my co-author for uh, the Rendlesham Enigma. Gary Osborne comes into the story. You've had this, what appears to be now, a hypnotic regression of some kind. How did you, how did the military interface with this? And how did this uh, nursery song become inserted? And how did you find out about that? What was that, what was that about? Uh, it was originally, it was originally transcribed when I did a book with Linda back, Linda Moulton Hall, back in, 95. Uh, I actually copied the, uh, uh, the, the tape, the notes from the doctor, and I sent them to her. And she uh, transcribed them. And of course, part of that went in the book, and I seen part of that in the book. But I could never bring myself to actually watching the film. Right. And uh, so, anyway, my co author was the Reynolds Magnificent, Gary Osborne. Uh, he says, Jim, you gotta, you gotta watch this. I can't. I said, I can't get through it. He said, I'll tell you what I do, and God bless him. He says, he did this. He transcribed the whole four and a half hours, 
It's not the best audio. He transcribed every bit of it, and then we sat over a period of number of days on Skype, and he read it to me. That's how I found out what was in the uh, uh, hypnosis. And some of it was pretty shocking. I mean, uh, I had no memory of going back uh, down to the OSI building, for example, at, uh, at Bentwaters. Uh, but in there, it describes a thorough uh, briefing, uh, debriefing. Uh, uh, sodium penance always used. I even agreed to it. All kinds of stuff. Uh, so what about uh, Mary Had a Little Lamb? Well, uh, that Mary Had a Little Lamb, that's just really, that, that's pretty strange. That came out in the hypnosis with my psychiatrist that she taped. And what it was, there's a memory block put it in. And uh, for some reason, when Anytime about the actual binary come up or getting close to it, I would start hearing this nursery rhyme. And what it was is a, is, a, is the block put in, apparently, to uh, because I would immediately be back at the OSI building every time it happened. And uh, anyway, she worked through the block. And uh, so I guess it was a warning or is it safety feature they put in i don't know what i don't really understand the mechanics of it but uh i know it worked you're talking well. about you're talking about now the psychiatrist you're working with through the military initially that it was inserted through them who actually inserted it no my psychiatrist that i went for help was in uh, 93 mm -hmm. they were 94 uh yeah the this this Sodium pentothal and this other stuff that appeared, uh, came to light apparently happened uh, uh, on the base down there uh, in Boaz being interrogated. I didn't even know. It. Okay, interesting. Uh, right here, here's here's the problem with the whole thing. They had a really good plan. Uh, these people on uh, you know the containment. Okay, they did. They had a perfect plan with one exception. They didn't know about my notebook. That was the problem. That was their Achilles heel. Uh, if they'd known about that, that would have been gone. I'll guarantee you. Uh, and I was close to giving it to them on my first visit down there. But uh, they, just, they just seemed like they were uh, more worried about initiating the cover story to start with than me. I was going to give them you know, like some drawings and stuff. They didn't seem interested. So, That's interesting. So while you were debriefing, um, they apparently asked you if they could administer sodium pentothal, and then they found out that you had this binary code or these ones and zero sequences that you had been exposed to, that you'd been downloaded with, and so they inserted this nursery rhyme to essentially block any memory of that, probably with a suggestion. That's what the uh, hypnosis tells yeah. I have zero memory of that. Yeah. And this, this process is called containment. And it's, you're not the only person it's happened to. This happens. This happens in these kinds of cases to stop the information from flowing out to the public and any further. And we're going to get to that in just a, in a little bit as to why you believe this entire subject has been held so tightly. Uh, because many people, you know, even 
uh, you know, Project Blue Book came out, um, you know, in the, the History Channel series, which, of course, is very well done and highly produced. But it keeps coming out. The people aren't ready for it, right? That's the most commonly used statement. But there are so many other potential implications about why the militaries of the world don't want the citizens of the world to know about this phenomenon. We'll go to that in a bit, but I want to get into what happened when you and Gary Osborne got together and started working with the code. Well, it's interesting how I got a hold of Gary. I never heard of him before, uh, I don't think before 2010, but an uh, uh, acquaintance of mine says, because I was having dreams. I was having dreams about 23 and a half degrees, uh, some temperature thing, I'm thinking. And I said, it's like really reoccurring. It's been going on, I said, for 15, 20 years. I said, this is crazy. And she says, well, I think I know a guy that knows something about that that might be able to help you. And I said, okay. So I get the email. I send one off. I said, uh, uh, Mr. Osborne, I want I need some help with this, uh, about this 23 and a half degrees and degrees. And he's, he writes me back. He okay, I'll take a look at it. But he says, it's not about temperatures. It's about the... Uh, Earth's, um, you know, uh, the slant of the Earth and that. And I said, oh, okay. And so I ended up giving him, uh, the, when the binary was found out uh, on that film shoot, uh, I gave him copies of, of the, uh, the binary. I says, okay, work it. I says, I don't care whether it's negative or it supports what I'm doing, saying or whatever. I said, I want you to be as factual as you can and uh, work, work the uh, binary issue and, uh, and, and try to debunk it too and try to find out the cause. And so I left him alone. I didn't want to taint it. Uh, I didn't, as a matter of fact, get a home like for six months. And uh, he, he sort of thought I didn't care about it anymore. <laughs> And so when I get a hold of him on a Skype call, he said, well, he said, I thought you just didn't care anymore. I said, no, I don't want to taint the, your research. And he goes, oh, okay, thanks. So he was researching. And by the way, Gary initially was the biggest skeptic in the world. He was a perfect guy to look into this. And uh, so that's what happened. He ended up uh, uh Looking at it, we started having so many coincidences with the uh, binary coming up. Uh, and he goes, Jim, there's a code within the code. I says, really? So this is one of the reasons we decided to write the book, mainly because I had like 85 pages that didn't go in the encounter book, and he had 50 that didn't go in. And Nick and I talked about it. And he said, well, you need to write your own book. So right. uh, that's, what, that's what we did. And, but the, what we weren't counting on, we weren't counting on Gary making the discoveries of the code within the code. Let me, let me just hold the book up for just a second here. This is on page 634, where you have the coordinates of the locations. So, and then again, you have descriptions and what they relate to. And, what, and this is actually really fascinating because they're talking about points on the earth that have had very specific power in terms of ancient knowledge in particular. And um, I, I found 
high Brazil island west of England, which was considered to be old Celtic country. And if you look at it from more of a hermetic text point of view, that would have been an area that was a remnant of what was considered to be Atlantis, right? Just as the Yucatan was settled by um, remnants of the civilization that had been Atlantean all the way over um, into Sardinia and Greece. And so all of these areas are appearing here, plus Egypt, and then interestingly, Sedona, Arizona, which was considered the land of the Hopi, which have a continuous lineage of ancient knowledge. And so as, you know, again, I'm looking at this and thinking, this is fascinating because you're talking about, number one, I just went to Sardinia with uh, Freddie Silva and we did uh, uh, a number of shows on um, some the knowledge that we found there, some of what we found embedded in their culture by way of artifacts, but also uh, tying it in with the cultures called the Shining Ones, Tuathdanan, right? The ancient Celts. And this shows up here as well that this points to the area of the shining ones who are the beings that had elevated knowledge. So to me, this is absolutely fascinating. So tell me what you started getting out of this. Well, we started getting coincidence. We kept saying, yeah, discovery. Oh, that's a coincidence. I mean, and Gary and I, Gary and I on a Skype call said, okay, what is it now? 50, 60 coincidence. Let's call it by design. This has to be by design. This cannot be a coincidence again. And uh, what he discovered, and here's the amazing thing with these with these coordinates in it for the binary, these are going to come to the inch in some cases. These are not, we're on a global scale. These are not like within, you know, 10 feet or 15 feet or 100 feet. They're down to inches in a lot of cases. And uh, uh, the fascinating part of High Brazil is that it's the only one that's mentioned twice in the binary at the beginning and the end. So there's special meaning there, no doubt. I mean, we have gotten satellite imagery of uh, there is 60, 70 feet below the surface of the, the coordinates area. There is an island. I mean, that's, that's already proven. But at one time, it had to be above Earth, uh, above sea level, I mean. And uh, I don't know when that would have been. Not too long ago, though. Uh, so that was fascinating. But uh, as, as Gary made the research, uh, we thought that we had all the answers were coming in pretty good. We had to go visit these sites. All those sites have pyramids. Even Sedona has what appears to be a pyramid, okay? They're all around central around a pyramid. There's one in China. Uh, uh, the one in uh, uh, Naxos, Greece, does not have a pyramid there, but I don't think. Maybe there is underwater. I don't know. Isn't that uh, the Temple of Apollo? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, was, yeah and, 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 and the actual coordinate site is about, you know, 85 feet away from that. And But it has to be where it's at to make this all work, the code. And uh, just when we thought that we had, we kept delaying the book, by the way because there were so many discoveries coming up about this code. And then the final one, we had to delay it again, was in uh, May 26th, I believe, or May 28th of this year, of 19, uh, 2019. And what they, 
what they discovered was in the code is the fine structure constant. This is like the God thing. This is like anything like with black holes or anything the else. The phi ratio, yeah. Yeah, this is stuff that, that, that Carl Sagan said yeah. eons ago that if we ever had an intelligent message back, they would have to have this fine structure constant in it. And, uh, for example, like we're about, you know, on our, on our digital stuff, you know, we're about five, operate about five over, I don't know, whatever that comes to millions or something like that. Um, the uh, Sagan said, if, it, if you find someone with six, they're brilliant, okay? They're really far ahead of us. Uh, the code from 1980 uh, goes, 14 over. So as these, this intelligence, which is now proved positive, we know that for sure, uh, it's a higher intelligence, uh, is really intelligent. Maybe enough intelligence there to uh, have no problem with uh, interdimensional travel or things of that nature. And um, this goes into one of the reasons where, why there's probably a cover-up trying to suppress this information uh, can you imagine if anybody on this planet had the ability have gained the ability to uh, interdimensional travel Hollywood calls it time travel okay uh, would be able to come back at any point in time change anything they want tweak it can you under, can you see the impact this would have right. as far as money as far as Power, it's all about power always is. That's usually the case. So this is something. I think what, 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 what the actual false flag story is UFOs. I don't think it's, I don't know, I think that's just the story they use to cover up maybe this, the abilities of these interdimensional beings. So, uh, and we've come to our, uh, own conclusions with it that they are they're probably us for the future and the reason is it says that in the uh, hypnosis from them uh, that would be described in a lot of detail but also let's just go ahead with common sense wise uh, look at this uh, the craft okay the craft is triangular in 1980 they didn't really have triangular craft but they have them all the time now I mean most of them are uh, plus, uh, they didn't really have drones back then, but they have all kinds of drones now, unmanned craft. They have, uh, uh, another thing is that uh, we, all of us on this planet, mark our aircraft. We put symbols on them. We put imaging on it. And, if, and then the other thing is, why is the binary in English? Well, all our pilots and that fly aircraft, they speak English. Maybe that's the case. We don't know. But there's so many similarities to human. Why wouldn't it be human? The other thing is with the binary and also with the glyphs itself, the discoveries are being made daily on them. Everything associated with the binary and the glyphs is mathematical. Mathematics is, mathematics is its own language and uh, a universal language, apparently. So... Uh, we have more discoveries coming. We know it. We're researching and we're working on the glyphs now. And Gary is also working on the code. Uh, we had so much information on it, he had to do a book too. As you can see, just with Rendlesham, 
we're talking and backing up everything I say and everything all the other witnesses right. say because we don't want you to take my word for it. You know, we want to have the evidence in the notes section. And, uh, and we did this on purpose because what we wanted, I didn't want to convince you when you read this book uh, to make you believe certain things, nothing like that. What we, we both wanted, we wanted to uh, show you the facts and then let you decide what, what happened with the whole book. I mean, that's up to you. Uh, every, everybody has been uh, buying books, there's been quite a few, uh, I tell them I'm. I want them, especially on, 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 you know, like Facebook. And I said, hey, whatever you do, once you read it, I want you to get back with me. I want you to get back with me and tell me your thoughts on it. I want you to tell me what you're thinking. I've also had some already uh, uh, come up with similar uh, encounters with similar uh, uh, signatures of the event. They match Rendlesham. So uh, I'm pretty fascinated with this. And it's a learning experience for me, too, also, with this book being out. It's absolutely, it is fascinating. The implications, of course, up to anybody to look at through their particular lens. Um, although I did, and through this particular lens I brought up a little bit ago, one of the other points in the book, there, there was this ratio vanishing point. And that vanishing point ended up um, in terms of uh, Earth coordinates in the Azores. And again, the Azores and Mount Picos is considered to be the last remaining visible uh, portion of the sunken continent of Atlantis. So all in Atlantean information, you know, uh, offing over to the, what were the, to Atadanum were what has become known as the Druidic people that, of course, kings throughout history always had by their side because of their visionary capabilities and their higher level of connection and intelligence in certain ways, right? And so this keeps coming back into it. And now I'm hearing you and I'm thinking then back of the Hopi and what you just said. I'm just having fun here and playing with this at this point, like everybody else does with this information. Remember the saying that's attributed to the Hopi that we are the ones we've been waiting for. You're talking about this, this collapse of time, this potential that we have been um, visited by ourselves from the future to perhaps give us pertinent information in an area that was, uh, stocked with nuclear warheads, and they show up repeatedly again around nuclear warheads. Is this possible? This is some kind of even a message or a warning to us for the future for humanity. We have come to pretty much, our confidence is high with this, okay? I'm not, I'll say this. Uh, we believe that they're, uh, they're, they're adjusting for something that benefits them in the future. Uh, something's gone wrong somewhere something's not right somehow and uh the tweaking is being done maybe to stop something maybe to uh make it less uh of an impact on them we don't know uh but it seems like uh they can do this stuff at random in minor ways and uh uh the, the stuff with uh, the hopis for example uh the tie-in there is like uh, it's 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 just crazy. Um, 
as I started to uh, talk to, and I, I have a few people that, you know, are, are with the Hopi tribe, and that's who I, I talk to about this, and these, these ancient ones. So, uh, probably, from, from my understanding, I'll take a wild guess and just say, the ancient ones, they, they've been coming back for, probably through time, who knows their time, at, at various points around the world. It goes just like the pyramids. And one of the things with the pyramids that Gary has researched, this is down to the inch. This is not, right. yeah, this is no way we could build these ourselves. We have to have help. Uh, another thing is Gary believes they're a lot older than they are. So, oh, yes. Uh, uh, that information is interesting. And, uh, you know, I, I've spent quite a few years studying uh, hermetic documents and texts and such. And one thing that they'll say, and even John Anthony West, um, even Robert Schock, you know, all famous in the alternative archaeology uh, department. And um, all of them will say that they're far more ancient. In hermetic texts, they'll say that the Great Pyramid is 85,000 years old. When Robert Schock first laid eyes on the Great Pyramid, his instinct, he didn't talk about it publicly, you can lose your tenure over that, his first instinct and feeling was it was around 100,000 years old. John Anthony West said the, the Sphinx, um, years ago when I interviewed him, he felt was at least 35,000 years old. So we're looking at something, these artifacts that have been all over the planet we don't even know for how long, but it appears they were there prior to what has been become known as the Younger Dryas period and Great Flood that followed, right? Right. So and much I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what, Mer or, uh, or Regina, don't... It, this is something that we think. All right, from, the, from the actual deciphering the code, there, it, it shows that there is a secret chamber in, in Giza. It shows it. Okay, so there's yes. no that that the math shows it. We have there's teams, not our teams, but they're over there right now, and they're uh, they've been researching it. Um, we think what a better way for us for the future. How would you go ahead and give us something concrete, something that will help us? Why not put it in a safe place? Why not put it in the middle of that Giza? Why not? That's what we think. We think that there's something so... And we also think, and especially Gary, he's theorized this, that he thinks that it's the actual part of the top of the pyramid. Oh, the Ben-Ben, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the actual ball yeah. that is in there. And who knows what's in there uh, as far as information. So uh, this is what we were all... Looking for, we're doing the ground penetrating radar. We're we're looking for answers, but we're going to get them. We're going to get them too. I'll tell you something else. This, uh, this other part of this communication ties into it. I'm not talking about the woo-woo stuff, but this consciousness is a form of communication, but not the woo-woo stuff. There's people making money off this left and right. Not that I'm talking about. Consciousness is part of it, but. Uh, uh, it's our belief also that this has got to be, uh, uh, it cannot be learned. It is a gift, this part of this, kind of, whether it was done through DNA inserted or given or whatever, 50,000 years ago, who knows, you know? And what are you saying is the gift? 
the gift is the uh, is the 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 ability for certain people with certain DNA to have actual consciousness. Yes. Um, okay, and there's other people just they like it, they want it, they'll go to work groups for it. It's not going to happen. Well, in Freddie Silva's parlance, um, and he finds this same term coming up again and again from these cultures all over the world that have these ancient ones they called uh, the shining ones, the followers of the sun, the followers of Horus. It always trans translates back out basically to those phrases. And so there are these beings that appear to continue uh, and continue to come when help is needed and uh, awaken memory, uh, awake, uh, instill knowledge again in the local people after devastations and so forth. That's kind of Freddie Silva's part of that story is that people with those con that consciousness have always existed and are always there when needed. Exactly, exactly. And it's, it's funny that we were talking about the Shining Ones. That is actually one of the books that Gary Osborne wrote. That's what it's called. So uh, Fascinating. Yeah. Well, let me just ask you one, one question, two questions in conclusion. Um, number one, what is the second volume uh, going to be focusing on? And then the final question is, how has this experience for, from the age of 26, just investigating a crash, um, altered your view of life, human potential, even the universe? Well, Gary's going to take all his findings on the binary code and the code within the code, and then we're, we also want to uh, be able to visit. Uh, we only, I've only visited uh, two sites, uh, but I want to be able to do more. I want the, the one in uh, Egypt is an essential. Uh, the one in China I want to go to, but I don't know how I'm going to get that one done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's going to be rough. And, uh, yeah. So we want to do that, and hopefully those findings go in that book too. But also the findings that he's already discovered about the code will be in book two. Uh, I think that uh, also we're going to put our theories in there. This one here we didn't theorize in. We just kept no, the fact. You just kept, yeah. Uh, and I, if you go to one of my, my lectures or something, you're going to say, oh, yeah, it's all, all you talk is facts, facts, facts. Well, that's what I do, but in, the, in this book too, I'm going to have the the uh, something I wanted to do. I want to be able to put up, you know, the the theories, uh, my feelings from the communication, uh, actually what I think it really meant, and all that kind of stuff, and put it in that book. And Gary's going to put all the reasons. Yeah, yeah. At some point in time, and you know, two years ago, I guess it was, uh, we realized that Rendlesham. Uh, book was going to be sort of large uh, and there's no way we could put all this other stuff about the code in it and uh, and Gary says I guess we're going to have to do a book too <laughs> so one of the things he did is that he had all that research done so the book too is about 80-90% done he, because he kept all the research but we're also going to put in some of our, our, our newest discoveries and some of our research that we're doing uh, I'm just relieved with the Reynoldsham Enigma being out because it's the first time uh, everything's been told. Matter of fact, 85% of this book has never been released to the public before. And some other witnesses, they're going to find out new stuff too. 
Right. No, um, you did an amazing job. It's an amazing compendium of this event. I mean, I mean, Colonel Highbush. No one's ever heard of him. I says, my, and you know, everybody tries to any weather witness say, "Oh, we're left high and dry." No, we were not left high and dry. Colonel Highbush is an example of that. I was given a lifeline by him. I wrote about it in the book too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this it, it's um, it, it again. I always point to people who have um, who have doubts about the notion uh, that other whether it's us in the future or beings and consciousness from other places can reach in and reach, reach us and, and deliver messages and whatnot and function here. Uh, so many people are so skeptical about it so, because it has been kept a secret, because of the containment uh, practices of the governments around the world. And I love the fact that you just threw it all in there. You threw all of the documentation in there. So it's, it's pretty hard to read this book and deny that this event occurred and the fact that you're following up uh, on the, the ramifications of what this event was all about I think is absolutely fascinating I mean I already tossed out a few little th areas of my own personal interest in it and everybody else has their own so we'll wait and see when the next book comes out um, where how this flows especially after you've done some field research into some of these areas that the coordinates indicate so now, just the final summary here. What's this done to your life? You were just a kid back when this happened. Well, uh, it's life changing. I mean, what can I say? Uh, I, I tell you what. Uh, I think the worst part about it is uh, is the trauma part of it, the the PTSD part of it. I mean, for me, Rendlesham this week happened two nights ago i mean that's the worst part yeah uh, if i had my choice uh i wouldn't work that shift i would have let somebody else work it uh but i tell you what even with all the trauma i was i i felt compelled that everybody had to hear what happened especially with all the disinformation it's it's horrible they got phony movies coming coming out, made up this, it's so, this is, this is something that uh, I feel so relieved, and, uh, uh, and uh, in the response that people gave me, I feel humbled by it, by the way, but I wanted, in this book, I'll go back to chapters three and four in the book, I wanted you and every other reader to be with me in that forest, since yeah, I was yeah, you I was were alone there. that night. Yeah, I was really alone, and uh, I wanted you to be there and 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 know what was going through our mind, and 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 I hopefully I achieved that. I don't know. You did a uh, really good job of expressing it, taking people through it, climbing the berms, looking over, heart palpitating. What's next? You know, you really do take the reader on that journey with you. I think you that was mission accomplished. Thank you. We that's, that's good to hear. We we I I, I did we, we used stuff, stuff out of the hypnosis, but we identified it as that. Uh, the other thing that people don't know is I am a note taker. I make all my guys at the time they had to have notebooks, so they all kept notes. And the other thing I did uh, to help me with this this book and having such detail is um, 
when I was in service for the whole 21 years, I kept journals, daily journals, everything that happened. So that also helped. Yeah. Uh, actually, the journals originally were done just for CYA. You know what I mean? If, or to, to talk about meetings from a year ago or you know, whatever. Right. But they were instrumental because I was at Bentwaters from 80 to 84 along with Colonel Halt. And there was a lot of stuff that happened after the event. And that, that's where a lot of that information came from. Right. Right. Well, congratulations. I'm glad you have it off your chest. Uh, I think we'll stay tuned and see what happens when uh, you and Gary Osborne come out with um, some more of the information on the code buried within the code and have had a chance to do even more field research. And I'm sure that's going to rock your world even more. It so, will. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and, and to bring this uh, into a place of reality, even in the minds of people who are still skeptical about the phenomena. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. So everybody, you can go to Amazon.com and pick up the book, The Rendlesham Enigma by Jim Penniston, and, and really start diving into the topic for yourself. And, and it's a wonderful book to share with anybody that you would like to have uh, – have, have, have a deeper understanding of this phenomena. I think it's really hard to deny the phenomena exists after you read this one. So until next time, thank you for joining us here on ReginaMeredith.com.